There are some claims that are so divisive that you have to respond to them. They're so controversial that to choose to ignore the claim is in some ways a response in and of itself. If you choose to simply let it pass by, you are responding to it in a certain way. Now, I believe there was some sort of big thing that happened last night. Um, uh, equip. Excellent. Good. Right response. Uh, although, although, moment of truth, how many women who went to equip asked somebody to tape the wedding for them? Okay, it was, o- it was only Katie, just so you all know. I wanted to. <laughs> so apparently there was a wedding last night, a royal wedding, and the preacher, uh, a man named Michael Curry, seems to have stolen the show, at least if the media reports are anything to go by. However, people are divided. It was controversial, his sermon. One of the very first comments we heard coming in the door this morning was somebody saying, oh, that was amazing. That was just moved me. Oh, that sermon was so good. One of the first comments at 10 o'clock this morning was, man, that sermon was at least half an hour too long. Which, having read the transcript, I don't think there was a half an hour of sermon there. So, I don't know what you thought of it. Uh, moment of confession at around about eight o'clock last night, which I believe is when kind of it was all happening our time, I, I sat down on the couch uh, to watch the life-changing movie Kung Fu Panda 2. So uh, I'm, I'm not really speaking from experience. Uh, it's not bad, actually. If you, if you, anyway, look, to be perfectly honest, whatever you thought of the wedding, whatever you thought of Michael Curry... It's not really the sort of claim that really does require you to have some judgment about it. You can be like me and not care at all, and it's not going to affect your life, really, one way or another. There are some claims, however, that are so divisive at the moment in your life where you encounter them that you do have to somehow respond. The late 90s, we were holidaying at Barrington Tops. Had anybody been? There used to be a guest house there. It burnt down in the mid-2000s. Anybody else been there? Uh, you missed out, sorry, it's gone, you can't go there now. But there's a whole bunch of bushwalks around about the guest house. And we spotted one on the map that looked awesome. It looked like this loop that started at the guest house, it came back to the guest house, it went over the bridge, past the creek, past the glowworm caverns. We thought, this is cool, we're going. So we booked out the morning, we prepared ourselves, got the gear, knew where we were going. We got to the start of the track and only then saw the sign, track closed overgrown. Now at that point in time in our lives, that was a claim that was very divisive. We had a choice to make, you either continue and ignore the claim of this sign or turn around and go back the way you came. On the one hand, there we were, young, fit, prepared, keen, we wanted to have a crack at this walk. On the other hand, presumably the people who made that sign knew what they were talking about. Or did they? Maybe they were just a bit crazy. Or perhaps their level of overgrown was different to ours. Maybe they were selfish people and this was the best walk in the whole area and they wanted to keep it pristine for themselves. Maybe it was just meant to be a temporary sign. It was for last season and it should have been taken down by now and they hadn't and we could have... Or maybe they really did know what they were talking about. We needed to make a decision. That was truly a divisive claim that required a response. 
As we've seen in the last few chapters, and as we're going to see again today, Jesus made some claims that not only were they divisive back then, such that the people who encountered it 2,000 years ago needed to make a response, but they are still claims that carry through into today, such that you and I, when we come across them, need to respond. Now, of course, it's important when we come to moments like these to keep an open mind, to not allow your bias, which we all have, there's no such thing as a truly neutral person, to not allow your bias to create prejudice. We came to that bushwalk well and truly prejudiced. We wanted to go on that walk. When we come to Jesus, we need to come with an open mind. That doesn't mean an empty head, by the way. That doesn't mean full of gullibility and just check your brain in at the door and accept anything given to you. No, use your brain, think hard, work at it, be critical in the best sense of that word. But don't be unduly cynical. Well, what are the claims that Jesus made? I want to tell you two things about the, the, the context in which Jesus operated before we come to the claim. Two things, you'll find them on your handout if you're following along. Uh, there's an outline there of where we're going. The first thing to tell you is that the world that Jesus confronted was much the same as our world. The world that Jesus confronted was much the same as ours. There are people these days who will say, well, look, Let's be honest here, Jesus was around 2,000 years ago, the world has changed. Technology has advanced, culture has developed, our understanding of people has matured. And so what Jesus had to say back then, it's not really all that important today. Now it's true, in some ways the world has changed. Uh, Pretty sure Jesus didn't have Facebook. He didn't spend every meal Instagramming his burger before he ate it. He didn't have aeroplanes that could travel from one side of the world to the other in a day. There are differences in the world and how it operated. But I'll tell you what, in the areas that really matter, the world back then was the same as the world today. The world that Jesus encountered was also a world in bondage. A world in slavery. A world under oppression and suffering. It was a world where people were slaves to their own sin, slaves to other people, slaves even to Satan. And that world is still exactly the same as ours. Our world, our people, the ones around us continue in slavery to sin. You and I, are born into that. Continue in slavery to people and the religion that people make. Continue in slavery even to Satan. His world is the same as ours. You also need to understand that the conflict that Jesus faced, this is the second point about the context, the conflict that Jesus faced wasn't just from people. If you thought Jesus was a happy-go-lucky guy who got along with everybody, make sure you keep reading his biographies because he came into conflict with all sorts of individuals. We're going to see today, he even came into conflict with the religious people. If you think that religious ones are the ones that are okay with Jesus, we're going to see otherwise here. But it wasn't just a conflict with people. It was a conflict with Satan himself. This is why I'm asking you to keep your mind open to keep your options before you. We, we've kind of done away with 
Satan and demons and this whole spiritual thing. Jesus, his opposition was both human and satanic. And so it's in that context, a world that truly is similar to ours, against opponents that are still there today, that Jesus made his claims. Claims that we need to respond to. And really, to put it in just one little sentence, what Jesus offers, or his claim, is that he offers freedom. He offers release, liberation, salvation from that bondage. Freedom from slavery to people, to Satan, to sin. Let's look at each of those in turn. We're not going to work through the entire passage that was read for us. We're going to pick out two stories in particular. And I want to show you firstly how it is that Jesus brings about this freedom from religion, from man-made rules. Have a look again at chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. As Jesus goes head to head, toe to toe, with the religious leaders of the day. So Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields. As his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, these who are watching, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Of course it's to do good. Of course it's to save life. But they remain silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. His hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I want you to notice a few things in here. Firstly, notice what it is that religion does. What it is that people, when they begin to take even what God has revealed. I mean, these Pharisees, they had in hand the very words of God and they had taken those and twisted and distorted and turned it from something that was meant to bring freedom into something that brought oppression instead. Is the Sabbath for doing good or for doing evil? Well, of course it's for doing good. They had turned a positive The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. That's a positive thing. Go and rest. And specifically, it was supposed to be a reminder of God's rest with His people. 
It had echoes of creation in it. It had echoes of the exodus in it. It had echoes of the promised land in it. It had echoes of what was to come into eternity in it. The Sabbath was supposed to be God's people delighting in their God and resting in Him. And they had turned a positive into a negative. They went from have a day of rest into have a day of not work. Do you get the difference? The Sabbath went from day of rest to day of not work. And then they added all these rules and regulations. What is work? That you're not allowed to do. You must not do any of these things because now you have this rule. You must not work. And so they saw the disciples plucking a head of grain and they went, oh no, that's work. Not allowed to do that. Stop doing that. This is what religion does. It puts weight on people. It enslaves and binds. Ironically, of course, you notice what they did on the Sabbath, right? Which is it lawful to do? To save life or to kill? And what did they do? The Pharisees went with the Herodians and plotted to kill Jesus. Jesus brings freedom from this. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus invites you not to come and follow a new religion. I know it sounds weird, me having a go at religion. I'm I'm a minister, right? Surely, isn't this what you do? You can understand the difference. Jesus doesn't call you to a new religion, to a new yoke, to a new set of rules, to just another one the same. What He offers instead is relationship with God. It's a very different thing. Come and know the God of the universe. He doesn't have any time for man-made rules that weigh you down. Jesus brings freedom, liberation, that you might truly know God and that He might know you. In order to do that, though, first you need to be freed from Satan. For this is the second part of what Jesus offers, of His claim to bring freedom from the very dark spiritual forces that oftentimes we are even unaware we are slaves to. It's the greatest lie the devil ever told, isn't it? You know how that goes? What's the greatest lie the devil ever told is? To convince the world it doesn't exist. I reckon whoever the devil's PR guy is did a really good job on that one. Satan, you've got to stop possessing people quite so openly. Just, just let them forget that you're even there. Little subtle, little this way, that way. They're going to ignore you completely. They're going to be your slaves and not even realize. Jesus claims to bring freedom from that. Look at this second event. Looking over at chapter 3 and verse 20. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. His family heard about it. They came, they said he's out of his mind. The teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem. The bigwigs came to check out this Jesus. And they said, he's possessed. He's casting out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus called them and he spoke to them in parables. This moment of confrontation. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. However, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. <laughs> Jesus is spoken of as all sorts of things. You ever heard of Jesus? He's a good teacher, he's a good man, a son of God, a miracle worker, he's a prophet. I've never yet heard anybody say Jesus is a thief. That's what he says of himself here. He is the thief. He is the one who comes and binds the strong man. He is the one who comes and ties up Satan and then takes away all of Satan's possessions. All those people who were his slaves. Jesus says, I am stronger than Satan. He's not going to give them up. He's not divided. He's not going to release those who are his. It requires somebody stronger than Satan to come and remove them from his hands. I need to believe that this is true. I believe that it's true. First and foremost, because the Bible says it is. And that is enough. And yet, I also personally know three individuals who by their own witness and actions will attest to possession of themselves, them being possessed, and Jesus entering their lives when they became converted and bringing immediate and complete release and freedom. Now, they had explicitly what is true of everybody implicitly. If you're outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are still bound by the religion of men and you are still a slave to Satan. And so in the end, the claim of Jesus, as he promises release from religion, as he promises freedom from Satan, is that what he brings is salvation from our very own sin, which is what sets us up to fail in all these ways in the first place. Just look at that one last little verse, verse 28, as he finishes speaking to these people who are set up against him. He says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. What a promise. It doesn't matter what's in your past. Anything. Everything can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what lies in your future. Anything, everything can be forgiven. Now, Jesus doesn't go in depth into how that's going to happen here. We're going to come across that in the rest of the gospel. It's his life that it will require that we might be forgiven. But the offer is there. Freedom liberation, salvation from your very own sin that clings and besets and we have no other way of getting rid of. What a promise. Note though that it is a promise that comes with a warning. Verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. 
This is a very serious warning and we need to take it straight to heart. There is that which will cause you to never receive forgiveness. Now this verse has been unfortunately much misunderstood and, uh, and very wrongly taught in the past. It's not saying that there's a specific set of words that if you say those words, that's it. You will never have forgiveness. That if you just so happen to utter them, whether by mistake or intentionally, unforgivable. You're done. You're out. You're gone. There's that one little word that has been added in here. Most translations have it, unfortunately. Uh, I noticed the King James doesn't. Does anyone still use the King James? Anyway, uh, I'm not into King James stuff, but at least they... Anyway, right back in verse 29... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of... And then that little word, an, shouldn't be there. It's not a sin. It's you will be guilty of eternal sin. And specifically, it is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What were they saying? They were seeing the work that Jesus did. They were seeing God at work and saying that's the work of Satan. That's the work of an evil spirit. If you stand face to face with God, if you stand face to face with His salvation and you say, that's Satan, well then of course there is no forgiveness. Where else are you going to go to if you've just looked God in the face and said you are evil? While you remain in that attitude, there is no forgiveness. If you reject God, when He comes to save you, then you will not be saved. If you continue to reject the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, the offer that He makes by the power of His Spirit, there is no forgiveness. Well, Jesus came into a world like ours, He faced both human and spiritual opponents, the problems that we still have. And he claimed to bring freedom. Freedom from religion, freedom from Satan, freedom even from our sin. It's a claim that's really very divisive and one that you have to respond to. Lots of people have responded in lots of different ways. They did back then, they do today. Maybe, maybe Jesus is just a nutter. He's just plain crazy. He's a loony. He's a sandwich short of a picnic, right? He's just, people thought it back then. His very own family thought it back then. Did you notice verse 21? When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Let's just, Jesus just, Come home, have a cup of tea, just settle down a bit, will you? You're going a little bit, just... Really? Crazy? Could a crazy person do what Jesus did? The miracles, the power, the casting out of Satan, the teaching with authority this intimate knowledge of God and His ways. Jesus wasn't crazy. It's interesting to note what this teaches us about 
Jesus' family. I mean, his family heard, they came. We note down in verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers are there. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, as is taught in some churches. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And furthermore, nor was Mary perfect and sinless, because she got it wrong too. She misunderstood Jesus, just like all the other disciples did. She was there later on and she saw Jesus and I'm sure she was converted. She understood him, but she was no different to anybody else. Even his family thought he was mad. People today will say he is crazy. You've got to meet him. I don't think that's true. People back then said Jesus was a bad person. Not just misguided, but actively out to harm people. That's what the Pharisees thought, hence why they killed him. They thought, here is somebody who is harmful. People today still think that as well. I'm not really into this guy very much at all, but I couldn't help but notice that he references this specific verse. Uh, Anyone ever heard of a guy called Bertrand Russell? He's a British philosopher, kind of 1970s he died, so he's been a few years old now, a couple of decades old. But a famous philosopher, famous atheist, right, very much against Christianity. And he spoke specifically about verse 29, about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he said. That text, that specific verse, has caused an unspeakable amount of misery in the world. For all sorts of people have imagined that they have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, thought that it would not be forgiven them either in this world or the world to come. I really don't think that a person with a proper degree of kindliness in his nature would have put fears and terrors of that sort into the world. Bertrand Russell thought Jesus was a bad person. And he would have been right if Jesus' warning wasn't true. If I stop you from going swimming in the beach, you're there, you're in your swimmers, uh, well, you're in your wetsuit because it's cold now, but you're ready to go for a swim and you're about to jump in and I just come and say, no, you can't, you're not allowed to, no swimming today. And you think, well, I was looking forward to it, this would be lovely. You think I'm a bad person, I've caused you angst. I've removed from you something of joy and beauty and it's only then that I tell you there's a great white about three metres out from the shore and you go, oh, okay, you turn around and go home. I'm only a bad person if my warning is not true. If what Jesus says is a lie, then of course he's bad, for he has indeed caused untold misery. But if his warning is true and his claim is real about you and about me, then he's not bad, he's utterly, utterly kind. Maybe he was just a fad. Maybe he just came and went like teenage angst and really we shouldn't pay any attention to him. I don't know, 2,000 years later and 2.2 billion followers in the world, it's kind of hard to see Jesus as a fat, isn't it? Maybe then he truly is who he claimed to be, God, offering you freedom. Freedom from religion and the weight that it brings to live in relationship with God. Freedom from Satan and the slavery you may not even know you have to him. Salvation from your own sin. You need to make a decision because the wrong decisions have consequences. We chose to ignore the sign on our bushwalk. 
as you could imagine, we did, young punks that we were. We're ready, we can do it, off we go. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't too bad. It was a bit overgrown, you know, those ferns kind of reaching over a bit and it was a bit damp because it had been raining and because it's overgrown, it didn't evaporate. But we made it, we got around, no injuries, the path was still there, we got to the end. It wasn't until the end of the walk, when we were back at the guest house, that we realised the penalty for our error. As I noticed a bit of blood running down the back of the neck of one of the guys, I thought, oh, did you scratch yourself? And then I felt a bit of an itch on my hand, and then... It wasn't until we got into the showers that we discovered the extent of the penalty. Because of course, right, a lovely overgrown track nobody had been through in years, there were leeches everywhere. Every little brush of a fern brought with it another unwanted visitor. We found them in between our toes. Somehow they'd gotten into the shoes. I don't know how they do that and crawled in there. We found them in places that are really not fit for public discussion. They were everywhere. We made our choice, we paid the price. The stakes here are so much greater. Where do you stand with Jesus? Are you like his family, he's mad? Are you like the Pharisees, he's a bad man? Are you like those from Jerusalem who came down to see? Is he just a fad, is he coming and going? What he offers you today is the only place that you will find freedom, that you will find forgiveness, that you will find salvation. Come and be a true follower of Jesus. Come and be his family as he finished, whoever does God's will. And God's will is that you would come to Jesus. Don't leave today guilty of eternal sin. To look God's salvation in the face and say, you are evil. Make sure that you leave today right with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the Lord Jesus. Come into our world, making claims that divided even then and divide today, Offering freedom, liberty, salvation. Father, give us hearts that will respond rightly. Remove from us our pride. Remove from us anything that would hinder us looking Jesus in the face and saying anything other than thank you. Of carrying out any action before you other than simply entrusting our lives into your hands of obeying you, of submitting to you. Thank you that what Jesus brings is a light yoke, that of relationship, not religion. Thank you that he frees us from Satan's clutches and that in his death he even brought forgiveness for our sin. 
Thank you.